0: My name is Anna O'Barry. And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to the Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2021, the UK is hosting the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. In the run-up to this critical event, the Climate Briefing podcast brings you everything you need to know about the COP negotiations and international climate politics. Throughout the year, we'll also be covering other important climate and environmental conferences, like the UN Biodiversity Summit. And we'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities to transition to net 0 societies entail. What solutions exist to help address climate change? And what can major emitters do to reduce their emissions? What are the key themes for COP26? And what do the poorest and most climate vulnerable nations want from the negotiations? To find out, we'll be speaking to policymakers, climate negotiators, business leaders, and experts from academia and civil society worldwide. Hello, and welcome back to The Climate Briefing, the podcast from Chatham House, which is all about COP26. It's great to have you with us. It's been a few weeks, actually, since I was allowed to do one of these. That's not quite true. Anna's not been preventing me from recording, but it's just been a bit of a crazy time. But it's wonderful to be back with you, and we will be publishing many episodes, actually, over the next few weeks, both before and during COP26 itself, which is finally upon us. I can't believe we're now at that stage almost two years after this podcast was launched. Thank you so much for sticking with us through all of that time and, and with the delay to Glasgow taking place, of course, because of the COVID pandemic. I should point out, as you can probably hear, that I'm a bit croaky today. <laughs> That's because um, I've am i managed to catch a cold that seems to be going around London. It's not COVID. I've i have had several tests, but um, my voice is a bit sort of huskier than normal, which uh, some of you may like. Maybe it's, uh, it's not for everybody, but hopefully I'll be back up and running once we get to Glasgow. So on with today's podcast. Uh, it's just me this week. Anna is working on some other content ideas for us. And I'm joined today by Tim Benton, who is the Director of the Environment and Society Programme here at Chatham House, where he's also our Research Director for Emerging Risks, having done a lot of work on climate-related risks for the UK government and for a range of other organisations before joining us here at Chatham House. We're going to be talking today about this idea of cascading climate risks. So the ways that, because of our kind of interconnected world globalised world, something that's been very noticeable during the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, that the risks that may affect populations in a certain part of the world will also have kind of subsequent impacts for other parts of the world. And and basically thinking through how climate risks in certain parts of the world also then have subsequent knock-on impacts on other communities and populations because of this globalised system. Chatham House has done a lot of work on this cascading risks framework. We've published several reports that relate to this, which I've linked in the show notes for you if you want to read a bit further. But for this conversation, Tim joined me just to set out sort of the scale of the challenge that we're talking about here and really how the system works and how we can get stakeholders involved with climate action on a global scale to really take notice of this and to use it as a catalyst for action. I hope you enjoy listening. So Tim Benton, thanks so much for joining me today for this climate briefing episode. It's lovely to be here. It's been a while since you've been on, actually. I think it was a uh, good few months ago, if not last year, actually. Oh, the nice. time has kind of compressed in my mind. It was mind long and... free cockpit, <laughs> <laughs> um, But definitely would encourage anyone to uh, seek out that episode as well. That was uh, that was a really interesting one too. But today we're going to be talking about this idea of climate risks, something that Chatham House does a lot of work on in a variety of different projects, and particularly this concept of cascading risks, which we'll come to uh, in some depth, I hope through this conversation. But before we get into the cascading risks question, I wanted to just get from you a sense of where we stand at the moment. We're just talking a few days before COP26 finally is is upon us. And Chatham House has published some very interesting, very harrowing in some ways reports uh, in in recent months about the state of the climate emergency and and where we really find ourselves towards the end of 2021. So so could you maybe give us a sense of that in terms of this climate risk question?
1: Okay, thanks, Ben. That's a very big question. But, you know,
0: basically, (laughs) in the run up to
1: COP26, we've also had the uh, report from Working Group One of the IPCC, kind of summarising the latest science. Mm. We're a little bit uh, over 1.1, 1. 1, close to 1.2 degrees of global warming. And yet in 2021, what we have seen is unprecedented heat in the Pacific Northwest, mm. unprecedented flooding, China, uh, the low countries, big climate impacts, almost wherever you look, heat waves up in the... Uh, far north that we would be jealous of in an on an English summer day. <laughs> Wherever you look, you're seeing weather that is disruptive. And I think the challenge as we look ahead is if we don't really advance our ambition in mitigating, given what we've seen this year or last year or the year before and the wildfires and all the other things mm. that have gone on if we look ahead to a world of 2.7 degrees which is kind of where we're heading for at the moment given current uh, pledges with 1.1 degrees and we're already disrupted left right and centre what would be like for one and a half degrees two degrees two and a half degrees and it becomes almost unimaginable and part of the challenge of that is that our existing Weather models, to a certain extent, are not good at capturing mm. the extreme weather, mm. and they're pretty good at capturing the uh, way that the weather will change on average, the climate. But it's the uh, what is known in the uh, technical literature as the tail risks. The tail risks are very uncharacterized, and if we're seeing the tail risks of extreme weather today a relatively little climate change. What will it be like if we get to large amounts of climate change? And that's where it gets a bit scary.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and could you just um, unpack that 2.7 degrees scenario a little bit for us? So, so just so that I've got this clear. So at the current level of NDCs, the pledges that countries make as part of the UNFCCC process, we're currently way off our Target of 1.5 degrees. Um, could you maybe give us a so, bit more so of a sense of where
1: <laughs> in where 2015 there? at Paris mm. the world signed up to, or signatures of the Paris Agreement mm. so signed up to, well under two degrees, preferably closer to 1.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we were heading for north of three degrees. Yep. We have now gone through one set of uh, nationally determined contributions the ndc's and the point of glasgow is to reinvigorate ourselves and produce ever more ambitious ones Hmm. and the ever more ambitious ones are getting us down to the mid twos right but that is still a long way from the 1.5 so part of the political rhetoric of COP26 is can we keep 1.5 alive Mm. or do we go so far uh, beyond being able to uh, decarbonise in time that effectively 1.5 becomes dead and we end up on course for two degrees or or further north. So the 2.7 degrees uh, is kind of where we're heading. And Mm. we hope by the time COP closes, it won't be 2.7 degrees, it'll be south of 2.7 degrees but it's still not going to be, for those who want desperately it to be two degrees or less, Yeah, we're still off course for that.
0: Yeah, OK, thank you. And um, can I just ask you a bit about the timelines as well? Because I think obviously people are sort of saying this figure of getting to this point by 2030 is being sort of bandied around. But obviously in, in previous iterations of COP, we've had earlier deadlines and these things. So could you maybe just explain the sort of science behind why 2030 is a turning point? So the issue really is that the
1: impacts of carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels and burning down rainforests and things like that, it becomes cumulative in the atmosphere. Mm. So it doesn't go away, unlike methane and the short-lived climate forces. So effectively, because the relationship between the emissions and climate change is a linear one, Mm. you know exactly how much carbon you can put into the atmosphere To achieve a certain goal and given the rate that we're putting carbon into the atmosphere today we have got less than 10 years or about 10 years of today's emissions before we hit the 1.5 degree deadline so we either radically change over the next decade and give ourselves some space Mm. or we overshoot 1.5 and hopefully claw it back later Mm. But there in, that itself is, is problematic. But it's it's that. That's the urgency.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. That's really clear. Now, um, as I mentioned at the start, something that we sort of wanted to focus on in this conversation is this whole idea of cascading risks related to climate change, which it'd be fair to say it's not a term that's really in The mainstream sort of public imagination, I don't think. So, could you maybe just tell us really what that means to you and describe some of the work that that Chatham House has been doing to get into these?
1: Okay, so the traditional way of thinking about climate change is using the old-fashioned risk equation, which Mm. is your risk is some function of your hazard. So, will you get flooded by an extreme rainfall event? Yeah, your exposure. Are you on a floodplain or at the top of the hill? And your vulnerability, if you're on a floodplain, can you build a big flood wall around you? So we've tended to think in terms of the impacts of climate change about the direct impacts on a given place, at a given time, for a given society. But of course, the challenge of today's world is that we are deeply, deeply integrated across sectors, across borders in ways that are almost unimaginable until you start looking at them. So the challenge is now increasingly framed of what will happen if there is a climate hazard, a flood, somewhere else around the world and Mm. how will that impact us? Mm. So if you think about what happened uh, earlier in the year where there was a crosswind and the Suez Canal was blocked for a few days. That led to significant supply disruptions that you couldn't get, I don't know, patio furniture in the yeah, summer. Yeah. But it was a very measurable supply impact. Now, imagine if one of the major ports in the world, such as Shanghai, got blocked because of a Yangtze River extreme rainfall event or some tropical storm coming through when Shanghai takes 30%, 30% of the goods in and out of China. Mm. What would happen from a global supply chain disruption perspective? You know, it wouldn't be a shortage of computer chips or a shortage of the occasional things. It would be a shortage of almost everything that every society in the world, particularly in the industrialised societies, rely on. So that's the kind of notion of a climate cascading risk is that an event somewhere else can interrupt something that matters and it can cascade from the original place, the original impact on the original sector, across sectors, across borders, to lead to large-scale amplification of the original disruption Mm. that could ultimately lead to systemic risk, i.e. the whole system. And, you know, the best example of this, of course, is COVID. So we had an emergence of a new disease across the other side of the world. A health risk very soon became a stop the borders risk, interrupt supply chain risk, shut down hospitality, stop people coming into the country, everybody got locked down. It's not a health... Well, it is still a health risk, but it became a whole economy risk. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the way that the costs have accumulated, the costs of COVID in total are far more than 100 times greater from the economic impacts than the costs of dealing with the health issue. Yeah, And so it's not a... COVID is is the risk from COVID is not a health risk, it's a whole society, a whole economy wide risk. And COVID is quite an interesting example because COVID is exactly the sort of thing that we expect from climate because climate is not just about floods and droughts and heat waves and wildfires. Climate is also affecting ecology Mm. and it's changing who lives with who in the animal sphere. And when you mix who lives with who in the animal sphere, then we expect pests to outbreak. We expect new diseases to emerge. So it's not, will our our supply chain be disrupted by a flood? But it's also, will our ways of living will be disrupted by new diseases? Mm. And so when we think about the ways that climate hazards can cascade across borders and geographies and sectors and impact us, even though we're a long way away from where the event happened that's where it gets particularly frightening. And we, we, I mean, we've seen it in the UK, haven't we? We've had Brexit Mm. and we've had the economic recovery post-COVID. What has that done? That means that energy prices have gone up. As energy prices go up, then it's not worth making nitrogen fertilisers for agriculture anymore because the input costs of the energy is too great. So, carbon dioxide which is a by-product of fertilizer production then it isn't available and who would have known that actually carbon dioxide is used for stunning animals so we can't stun animals so we don't have turkeys for Christmas but that's a kind of example of the way the interconnections of our economy are so tight these days that an interruption, whether it's a human-caused interruption or a climate-caused interruption or, or a cl- climate-ecology inter- interruption, yeah. is likely to have knock-on consequences, falling dominoes that end up being quite striking in their impacts.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting and uh, obviously quite concerning. <laughs> Thanks for that <laughs> lovely cheery conversation for a Tuesday afternoon. But um, in terms of this whole idea of the interconnectedness of everything, I, I wondered how far that really plays out across the entirety of the globe. I mean, obviously, globalization, very much a, a fact. And, and as you mentioned, the industrialized countries, the industrialized economies do have so much, so many connections between each other, border arrangements and trade deals and all of these systems and structures that bring us closer together. But is there a danger that, I mean, is it possible maybe for a country, say, like the United States or or China who have such huge resources? Is it possible at this point for them to sort of see this risk picture and say okay well we have such an enormous internal market could we just invest heavily in resilience climate resilience solutions and try and kind of insulate ourselves from these risks at the expense of the kind of global action that that you talk about being so necessary to deal with climate change
1: yeah Uh, an interesting question well no countries insulated themselves against covid yeah, fair, <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, uh, despite their best efforts, and, you know, the ones that have got closest have been the ones that have been able to just manage their populations in quite tight ways, like China and so on. The bigger question, I th- well, there are kind of two questions embedded in, in yours, as far as I can pass them in my mind. The first is that every country is globally embedded. mm Yep. To a greater or lesser extent, and if you think back to the food price spikes of 2007, 8, and 2010 and 11, those were caused by droughts in Australia uh, and the Eastern Europe, and the end results of those was that we had food riots in uh, many countries in the developing world because of market spillovers and their imported food going up in price, and food aid going up in price, though so each dollar buying less volume, so going, going less, less far. So you end up with those spillover effects into markets that you wouldn't expect to be very closely linked. And of course, the 2010-11 food price spike sparked the Arab of spring. And we all know what happened after the Arab Spring. And mm. that was also associated with increasing migration into Europe and rise of nationalism, destabilisation of right. Europe, yeah. Brexit, etc, etc. Yeah. So some of these <laughs> risk cascades are really long time playing out, uh, difficult to predict, uh, and so on. So to, to the other question, your question about building resilience. Now, the interruptions from a climate hazard on... The way our world works can be through finance, through destabilising governance systems, through sparking people movement or stopping people movement. It can be through supply chains. It could be through interruption of information flows. There are many, many ways. I mean, information flows. There was an undersea cable to South Africa that was recently washed away because of an extreme flood event that increased the volume of water, which caused Mm. an undersea a landslide which moved the data cable right. and so on. so so there are many ways that you can do it so it's very difficult to think about how you pinpoint a risk and build resilience to that risk right yeah. so I use the example within the food system my specialized area of expertise you can imagine a thousand different risks a thousand different, ha- different hazards that could interrupt production pests and diseases. Impact on labour, impact on transport, impact on infrastructure, impact on information flow, finance flows, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, if each one of those had a one in a thousand probability of happening in any given year, then what, a thousand times a one in a thousand gives you one. So the probability of an event happening to create a disruption is high. Yeah. So we can't specify which hazard is going to create an impact, but we can say actually it's very plausible that we will be disrupted, as we are increasingly finding. So how do you then build resilience to that? Well, resilience broadly has four properties. It has uh, functional redundancies. So do we have stores, for example? Yeah. It has diversity. Do we get lots of different things from lots of different places? It has uh, modularity. So do we spread all our processing around or do we centralise it in a single point of failure? And it has agility, substitutability, you know, flexibility and all of those sorts of things. Now, if you think about it for any given industrial system, supply chain, goods sector, we've removed all of those four properties in the name of efficiency. So we've got rid of redundancy with just-in-time supply chains. We got rid of diversity because they're too expensive. Let's go with a single supplier from a single place. Oh my goodness, having lots of processing facilities doesn't make sense. We can make more money out of a single one. And As we found with COVID and lockdown, we lock our suppliers into a particular supply chain. So when hospitality shut, it wasn't possible to take milk that was ending up in a coffee shop and Mm. put it in a a supermarket because the supply chains were too different. Mm -hmm. So the issue of all of that, of course, is building redundancy inevitably implies putting back in the things that we stripped out in the name of efficiency, Mm. which means cost. Mm. And so... I guess to a certain extent, until we are hit with these shocks enough, the incentive will be to say shocks are still rare, we won't do anything about it, but
0: it will happen, yeah, and then uh, yeah, things <laughs> things like p p e are sort of yeah, resonating exactly. in my mind, you know these, uh yeah, absolutely, no, thank you for laying that out, but then I suppose the the next question to that then is is whose responsibility then is it to think about this and to take on the cost because obviously, you know, the UNFCCC process that we've been speaking about so much on this podcast has been primarily kind of state-led, but a lot of the sort of supply chain issues there that you're describing, those have been driven by multinational corporations and labour movements and a whole range of other actors as well beyond the state, many of which may be sort of unwilling to bear the costs that you've outlined there. So, How do you sort of go about engaging with the right actors to begin to think about these things rather than just leaving it up to, oh, well, once the shocks become more regular, we'll sort it?
1: Yeah, another good question. So I think there is growing recognition in institutional decision makers that we've got to pay much more attention to these cascading risks, Mm. despite it being difficult to predict them and do anything quantitative about risk management. I think if you think back to the great financial crisis of 2007-8, our response to the run on the banks was for, for regulation to mandate having a certain stock holding and uh, building resilience through scenario exercises, etc, etc. And yep. certainly with some of the institutions that I've worked with over the years, part of the change in the mindset is to put on the desk of the CEO a plausible set of disruptions and say, could you cope with these? And I think there is a kind of interplay, a three-way interplay as always, between regulation, the market players and citizens in terms of what it is that each one of those will licence and so if citizens say, we're increasingly worried, we don't like these supply chain disruptions, we're worried about climate change, then it gives the political space for regulation to happen. And if regulation happens, then the market will say, here are the rules, we'll play within those rules. Yeah. But the challenge is that leaving it to any one of those three constituencies alone is unlikely to let it happen to, uh, the, to the extent that it needs to happen. But you can already see institutionally you know, a lot more, a much greater speed of movement to a certain extent than from a government perspective. But I do think it's important that government, as we have found through COVID, if there is a disruption that's big enough, broadly speaking, business can't cope and says it's a government problem. Mm. So there is that kind of what is crisis that is Sensible for the market to manage, and what is crisis that government has to manage? And at the moment, those two things are not well resolved, Mm. and as crises are likely to increase. Government can't say it's just down to the market because we've got to work out what the proper role of the state versus business is, and that's part of the post-COVID debate. so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a lot still to be We're done. Still there. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. And I mean, here in the UK, obviously the petrol shortages we've seen are a really good example of that as well, and, and whose whose responsibility it is to to truck gas supplies around around the UK. We're coming towards the end of the the interview, but I just wanted to ask you to maybe reflect a bit on the impact of this kind of line of argument. I mean, you say it's it's well-received among a sort of institutional level, this kind of, when you present what could happen, the things that people might want to mitigate, that is quite well-received. But, but do you think more broadly that a focus on the doomsday scenario, I suppose, is that still the most resonant and most potentially impactful way of achieving action on climate change? Because, I mean, a lot of the debates that I've been sort of following over the past year, although the science has been sort of referred to, there has also been this big emphasis on green growth, the promise and potential of transitioning to to green economies and investing in sustainable technology and job creation and all of these things as though I guess it's more of the kind of carrot than the stick. So is that something that you've had to think about quite a bit at Chatham House and and where do you sort of balance those two narratives as you're trying to develop this action?
1: So As a good communications professional will know, you don't have the same messages for all audiences and that kind of segmented nature of the world. If you're a financial institution whose fiduciary duty is to manage their assets well, risk is a really important lens through which to look at the future and minimising your risk and maximising your benefits is what you need to do. to fulfil that role. If you're a citizen living on a floodplain, thinking about risk is frightening. Mm. Therefore, you know, we need both. As you say, we need both carrots and sticks. But ultimately, the people who hold the power are the ones that effectively are within a risk management framework citizens hold political power and influence it, as I I said earlier. And, you know, from a citizen perspective, to live in a well-being economy once you've gone through the carbon transition, where we are prosperous without this dreadful kind of search permanently for consumption-led economic growth, where the air is clean, where we've got an environment to uh, look at or see biodiversity in, where our climate anxiety goes down, where we're not fostering emergent diseases in the name of economic growth, <laughs> etc. There are so many positives, yeah. but to get to that kind of nirvana, we've got to make the entrenched, incumbent, powerful people make the right decisions and therefore, for them, highlighting where their assets might be at a risk that they haven't considered, I think is important.
0: Yeah. Okay, thanks so much. Just to finish then, I'm, I'm going to ask you to make a, a much, much shorter term prediction. <laughs> and just obviously, we're, we're talking uh, just a few days now before COP26 begins. I uh, just wondered, do you have the sense that that this idea, this cascading risks kind of framework, is going to be sort of the subject of some attention in, in Glasgow over these two weeks? Is this going to be very much on the agenda, do you think? It's all bricks in a wall to sensitise the decision-makers that
1: it's important. And certainly the UK's Climate Change Risk Assessment, which I helped produce, the Chatham House Climate Change Risk Assessment, we published today a new report on which hazards we should be most worried about. All of these things aim to and help to sensitise the need for greater ambition. Mm. And my hope is that we will come out of Glasgow with a renewed desire to tackle this with 1.5 degrees still alive hmm. and it will never be a successful COP in the sense of what everybody in the kind of climate activity sphere would really like to see which is clear ambition to, to 1.5 but hopefully 1.5 will still be alive and this sort of risk analysis what are the impacts of climate change therefore we have to move yeah. I think is a, is a is a useful contribution to that. Absolutely.
0: Okay, well, look forward to to hearing from you after COP26 to see how that went. <laughs> Tim Benton, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks Ben. Well, that's it for this episode of the Climate Briefing. Thank you very much for sticking with me all the way through to the end of the episode. If you ever want to find out more about the podcast or perhaps pitch an episode idea to us, we'd love to hear from you. All you have to do is email me, bhorton at chathamhouse.org to find out more about what we're doing and, and to give us any feedback. All feedback is welcome, as long as it's nice. To help us reach more listeners, particularly as the uh, the road to COP draws ever shorter and, and we're almost up in Glasgow ourselves, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate and subscribe us on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this. It makes a huge difference to the discoverability of the podcast. And if you want to follow the work that Chatham House is doing on climate change at this really pivotal moment, then the best way to do that is to check out our website, www.chathamhouse.org or to follow us on Twitter at ch underscore environment. We'll be back in a few days with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for joining us.